KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Planned Parenthood in California prepares for the end of Roe v. Wade. While I do live and practice in the state of California, and I'm proud that we're a beacon for reproductive rights, I fear for the rest of our country. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Two San Diego City Council members propose a new conservatorship plan for homeless people. This is seen as a way of relieving some of the burden that's on the emergency response system, trying to get to people and get them services that they need and get them connected to either a public conservator or a public guardian. Middle-income housing struggles to be a priority in the new Midway District plans, and we'll hear some new music from San Diego's Surefire Soul Ensemble. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota Dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. A rally in downtown San Diego Tuesday night drew county leaders, politicians, and several hundred people, all concerned about reports that the Supreme Court is preparing to reverse abortion rights. A draft decision was leaked to Politico yesterday with five of the nine justices apparently joining to overturn the abortion rights decision Roe v. Wade. All the assembled leaders at the rally in San Diego declared their commitment to preserving reproductive rights in California. This is San Diego County Supervisor Nora Vargas. For over three decades, you know, I've been at the forefront of the reproductive justice movement. And for over a decade, while working at Planned Parenthood, we were trying to prepare for this date. The commitments made at the rally extend from a possible state constitutional amendment securing abortion rights to offering California as a refuge for women across the country who can't get abortions in their states. Joining me now to talk about this is Dr. Antoinette Marengo, Chief Medical Officer of Planned Parenthood of the Pacific Southwest. Dr. Marengo, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Is the news that the Supreme Court may be preparing to overturn Roe something you were bracing for? Yes, absolutely. I think looking at the makeup of the court, we've been preparing for several very bad outcomes, this being the worst. As much as I say that and feel that we were preparing and expecting this, um, it's really difficult news to sit with. It's, It's hard to really prepare emotionally for something like Roe being overturned. Why is it so emotionally devastating when the rights in California seem to be secure for women here? Well, you know, number one, we're talking about our entire country. Um, Really, the United States has been held up as a beacon to the entire world. And when I think about the rest of the world seeming to come more progressive and, you know, promote reproductive rights, and I'm seeing countries historically that were really anti-choice, places like Ireland and Mexico, Um, other countries in South America that are 
really allowing female patients or people with uteruses the right to choose. And yet in our country, where Roe has been the law of the land for nearly 50 years, we're reversing that. So while I do live and practice in the state of California, and I'm very proud of that and proud that we're a beacon for reproductive rights here, I fear for the rest of our country and what that's going to do to our institution, as well as other rights that might be taken away by the Supreme Court. Now, San Diego Planned Parenthood officials said during the rally last night that they're getting ready for an influx of women from other states if abortion is banned by the court. What are you anticipating will happen if this draft ruling becomes official? Well, I think uh, it's clear that 26 states are already poised to severely restrict or outright ban abortion in their states. And we've seen already, because of the very strict laws in Texas, that patients are moving to other states and they tend to go by car. So neighboring states were the ones that were hit first. We saw major upticks in in the states that were abutting Texas. But here in California, even, we saw an uptick of patients coming from Texas. And of course, uh, we see an uptick here in patients from Arizona already. So I think that in the states that do continue to provide abortion and stand up for uh, bodily autonomy, we're going to see a dramatic increase. Um, There's just no crystal ball. It's hard to predict what percent increase, but we are preparing and have been preparing for some time to accommodate patients who need our services because we know abortion is healthcare and we want to preserve that right for people with uteruses to obtain the healthcare they need. Can you share with us some ways how California Planned Parenthood is preparing for this influx of women? Well, I think what's really amazing and wonderful about California is not only has Planned Parenthood been preparing. So there are seven affiliates in California. We work very closely together to think about what days of the week even our services are provided and in what locations and what clinics, which clinics are closer to our bordering states, for example. But the entire state of California has come together with the Future of Abortion Access Council, for example, and independent abortion providers, university hospitals that provide abortion have come together to really talk about how we can assist our patients here in California, as well as patients coming from other states. You know, in Sacramento, San Diego's Tony Atkins, she's a state Senate president, said legislative leaders plan to pass a constitutional amendment here in California to protect reproductive rights. What would you like that to look like? Well, I mean, I think having it codified into the state constitution is tremendously powerful. It not only shows other states a way forward to help protect abortion within their states. So I think that's an excellent move. One that I would hope that the federal government would be able to figure out how to do to protect abortion um, at the federal level. So I I would love for that to be able to be moved forward and, and put on the next ballot if that's possible. Who will be the most affected by an overturn of Roe, as far as you're concerned? Well, I think it's very clear that underrepresented minority patients, people of color, particularly in rural areas, people in lower socioeconomic statuses, adolescents, um, minors affected by, unfortunately, you know, sexual assault, molestation, people just that have less access to healthcare in general and less access to financial resources are going to be the most affected. We know that, again, abortion is healthcare. It is very nuanced many times as to the reasons why people need an abortion. We need to remember that we don't walk in our shoes and to try to legislate who, when, why people get abortions is not the role of a politician or a state legislator or a federal government official. It is the decision between that patient and her healthcare provider. 
What do you see as the health consequences for women who no longer have access to reproductive health care? Well, there are many health consequences. Number one, the first decision that the patient is going to have to make is, is she going to continue the pregnancy because she must, because she doesn't have the resources? And then how is she going to access prenatal care? So many times we see that these patients will be late to prenatal care, which increases the risk of that pregnancy. Risks like preterm labor, preterm delivery, prenatal loss, so early, early pregnancy loss as well, and fetal death. So all of those things could happen if she continues the pregnancy. If the patient chooses to end the pregnancy but doesn't have resources, she may then have to choose to move forward with a self-managed abortion. And that, of course, can be deadly. It can be. I mean, I think we think of the pre-Roe world of 50 years ago where we had fewer options medically. I think those days, quite honestly, have passed, and that imagery can be quite dramatic. I think most patients will find a way, if possible, to use medical means um, to perform a self-managed abortion, which is safer, obviously, than um, anything traumatic like self-harm, throwing yourself down the stairs, injury to the abdomen. But there will still be some patients who will go to any means to not be pregnant. We know from just the reproductive lifespan of people with uteruses that when a person with a uterus wants to be pregnant, they will go to all ends to become pregnant. And the reverse is also true. If someone does not want to be pregnant, they will go to all ends to find a way to end that pregnancy. It is a very personal choice. And the healthcare community is here to help those patients, um, you know, plan their future pregnancies and future families when they choose to. And when they choose not to be pregnant, we need to be here for them as well. Uh, The medical community needs to do a better job standing up and proclaiming that abortion is healthcare, and we need to do a better job following the science. I've been speaking with Dr. Antoinette Marengo, Chief Medical Officer of Planned Parenthood of the Pacific Southwest. Dr. Marengo, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Recently, Governor Gavin Newsom proposed a new care court system to mandate treatment for severely mentally ill people and get them into care. While that proposal is making the rounds in Sacramento, two San Diego City Council members are proposing a local effort to mandate care for homeless people. Council members Marnie Von Wilpert and Jennifer Campbell have introduced a plan to add a new conservatorship and treatment unit to the city attorney's office. Unsheltered people who most frequently require emergency care for mental health issues could be placed into conservatorship in the new program, where a judge appoints a person to oversee medication and other decisions for the individual. Joining me is San Diego Union Tribune reporter Gary Worth. And Gary, welcome. Hi, Maureen. So this proposed conservatorship unit would be added on to the city attorney's new life-saving intervention treatment program. How would it expand that program? Well, it would hire three new people. Uh, one person would be called the uh, person-centered treatment coordinator. And then there would be two deputy uh, city attorneys uh, who would work with the court system. So 
this uh, treatment coordinator would be the person who would assess the people who might go into the program. And then the other two deputy city attorneys, they would work with the court system to decide if they do pursue a conservatorship, whether it should be through the city's probate court or through county superior court, depending on the severity of the condition of the person. Now, it's apparently aimed at people who use emergency services most often. Is that right? Yes, they gave an example of a gentleman who had used emergency services for like 500 times over 12 months. And there's people who would call 911 just repeatedly if they needed food or clothing. And those were the kind of contacts were being made. But there also have some serious uh, mental health issues. Uh, that same person they used as an example had been found laying on the uh, trolley tracks. Uh, so San Diego Fire and Rescue had to retrieve him and probably went to the ER. That's another thing that happens a, a lot with uh, homeless people. They, they do go into emergency rooms a lot. Sometimes it's their primary care is uh, is ERs. So this is seen as a way of relieving some of the burden that's on the emergency response system, trying to get to people and get them services that they need and get them connected to either a public conservator or a public guardian. Okay, so you explained how this would, in theory, work. But if someone was mandated into conservatorship, where would they be placed? Under the county more severe conservatorship uh, called LPS conservatorship, they might be locked in a mental hospital and mandated to take their medication, their antipsychosis medication, while someone else who may be less severe would have a public guardian and uh, hopefully they, ideally they would be housed. The more severe one I refer to as a LPS conservatorship, that's a 1967 act called the Lanterman Patris Short Act. And that is a pretty high bar to get somebody into a conservatorship. You have to be considered gravely ill. And there's been a lot of steps to try to redefine what that means. So that would be more broad. But that is such a high bar that uh, a lot of people are left frustrated because there's people who are still on the street. They deny that there's any mental problem with them. Yet at the same time, they know how to feed themselves, know how to clothe themselves, but they'll never get the help that they need, some people think, because they, there's just not an avenue to mandate some kind of services. Uh, so that's why there's these new steps, you know, one on the city level and on the state level with uh, Newsom's care court proposal. Yeah, well, how would it work with the proposed care court system, this new city program that's being uh, proposed? Care court isn't a done deal. It still has to be passed by the legislature. If it doesn't pass, then this will still be in place. And this is just expanding an, an existing program that so far over the last few years have has gotten 11 people in a conservatorship through the city attorney's office. Now, with care court, the difference with that is, as it exists now, somebody who is, uh, you know, petitioned to go before a judge uh, for LPS conservatorship, there's, like I said, a pretty high bar, but one of those bars uh, is that they, they've had to have some kind of incident with law enforcement. Under care court, anybody could identify somebody as potentially in need of a conservatorship. So a lot more people could get help before there's an incident is the argument for it. But there are homeless advocates who are wary about this move toward conservatorship in this new proposed city program. What are they saying? Well, in my story today, I talked to Greg Angel from Interfaith, and this morning I talked to Ann Maneshi of uh, Disability Rights California, and they both said their concern was this is another way of just 
you know, getting people locked up rather than getting services for them. And I, I think they both said that our more success that you can have with people who have volunteered to go into some kind of treatment rather than being mandated to. So Greg Angel was saying, if they had adequate and accessible services, as well as housing, then you'd have more success than trying to force people into treatment. So there is and always has been some pushback against moving too readily into conservatorship uh, out of the fear that we would backslide into the days when people could just get committed to psychiatric hospitals for any kind of misbehaving. So there is going to be that pushback. There's going to be a lot of uh, work to be done convincing people that this would be necessary and helpful for a finite number of people uh, who there's no other option. Now, one of the arguments that uh, the two council members said yesterday was that this doesn't mean that this new program would result in everybody touches going into conservatorship. They may likely go into a variety of different types of programs voluntarily once they're assessed. So they're approaching it as it's like this is a way of expanding what we're doing now. Uh, but that also includes just getting people into the existing services uh, that don't necessarily mean conservatorship, which means somebody makes decisions for them. I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Gary Warth. Gary, thanks so much. Anytime. Thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heinemann. Five development teams are competing for the chance to build a new entertainment district on the city's sports arena property in the Midway District. Housing advocates see the 48 acres of public land as a golden opportunity to build more affordable housing, in particular housing for middle-income households, those that are too wealthy to qualify for subsidized housing but not wealthy enough to afford market-rate homes. But KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen says as the city evaluates which proposal to select, middle-income housing doesn't count for much. And Andrew, welcome. Thanks, Maureen. Give us a rundown of how much housing each of these five development proposals would include in their projects. So if we're talking about the total number of apartments that each project would build, the project called Neighborhood Next has the most at about 5,700 apartments. Two proposals, uh, Midway Rising and Midway Village Plus, each have just over 4,200 homes. Uh, so a difference of about uh, 1,500 uh, compared to Neighborhood Next. And then I would put in the third tier, let's call it, um, the, the remaining two proposals, which are called Hometown SD and Discover Midway. And they both have roughly 3,300 homes. Now we're talking about the total total number of housing units. So if you're counting affordable homes only with restricted rents where you have to show how much money you make in order to get on the lease and the rent is based on how much you can afford rather than what the market will will uh, charge, uh, it's pretty much the same order. So Neighborhood Next has the most uh, with, with restricted rents, uh, followed by Midway Rising and Midway Village Plus, and then uh, Hometown SD and Discover Midway with the least. So how important is affordable housing in the list of priorities that the city has for the sports arena? Well, this is the question that prompted my reporting on this. Uh, So the state has a law called the Surplus Land Act, 
and it requires cities to prioritize developments with the most low-income affordable housing when they're leasing or selling public land. But the law only speaks to low-income housing, and that's really the only priority that that the city can consider. Uh, Low-income housing, by the way, is when the rents are affordable to people making 80% or less of the county's median income. Uh, The income, median income is calculated based on the size of the household. So if you're a single person, uh, you know, and you make $74,850, then uh, half the county is making more than you and half the county is making less. And so if you're making 80% of that, um, which would be just under $73,000, you qualify for low-income housing. And uh, so the project could have all of the middle-income housing in the world. That would be, you know, uh, folks who are or somewhere in the middle between 81% and 120% of the median income. Uh, but all of that middle-income housing just doesn't matter as far as the state law is concerned. And in fact, Neighborhood Next, which is the project with the most housing overall and the most middle-income housing, is one of the two proposals that the city wants to eliminate from consideration. And that's because it just wasn't as competitive in terms of low-income housing compared to the other projects. So there are no other factors that are actually written down that the city is allowed to consider when scoring the team's development plans. No, the only factor really, uh, as far as the state law is concerned, is the number of affordable homes and the average affordability of them. So, uh, you know, if you if you say, you know, this home will be affordable to someone making 30% of the median income, obviously there's more value in that in terms of, of the public good of, of uh, having affordable housing than, you know, a project that, for, that or a home that would be affordable to someone making twice that much money or three times that much money. So, um, um, the, the city is allowed to consider the number of homes and the average affordability of those homes. How is San Diego doing building middle-income housing? <laughs> Not well at all. So developers will talk sometimes about the hourglass, where at the very top for the highest income bracket, you're having a decent amount of housing produced. At the bottom of the income bracket, you've got a smaller amount, but at least something. There, you know, we're we're building some low-income affordable housing. For the folks in the middle, it's close to zero. So for from 2010 to 2020, San Diego County was supposed to add about 15,400 middle-income homes. Guess how many were built? (laughs) It was 37. So 0.2% of the need. We are building almost zero uh, affordable housing for the middle class. And it is not an easy problem to solve. There are no subsidies. You don't get tax credits for for middle-income housing like you can for for low-income housing. The city has been experimenting with some incentive programs where a developer can get uh, regulatory relief on a project if they set aside more homes for middle-income households. But those are generally producing little tiny studio apartments that that, uh, might be (laughs) affordable to a a middle-income household anyway. And so, um, you know, for for middle-class families, with children who might need two or three bedrooms. We just have not figured out how to build housing for them. Now, the city's real estate department wants to whittle down the list of proposals for the sports arena from five to three. Why is that? They're talking about time and efficiency. So they just want, you know, they don't want to, uh, you know, drag this process out any longer, especially if the state has really clear guidelines. The state saying, you know, you have to prioritize the project with the most low income affordable homes. 
And if you've got, you know, two of these projects that just don't c- compete with the with the other three that have more affordable housing, then, uh, you know, then uh, what's the point in in trying to, you know, string them along? We can just kind of be more efficient by eliminating, um, you know, some of these projects and and move forward with the ones that we know the state is going to to be okay with. Um, but the the city council uh, a city council committee a couple weeks ago um, took up that question of you know this the city staff's request to eliminate two of these proposals and the committee said no they want to they want to keep all five in the running they want a thorough vetting of all of their financials and they're more interested in getting a the best project for this property than they are you know getting it done quickly. And then there's a big question hanging over the entire sports arena redevelopment, and that's the coastal height limit. What's the latest on that? Yeah, so voters will remember in 2020, uh, there was Measure E on the ballot that would raise the uh, height, height limit in the Midway District uh, above 30 feet. Um, and uh, so that was approved by voters. Um, there was a lawsuit that uh, challenged the the in, the city's environmental analysis of allowing taller buildings in this neighborhood, and uh, and a judge found that the city had not done the proper analysis. And so that uh, that uh, height limit is still now at 30 feet, and none of these five proposals will pencil if the height limit is not raised. The city is trying to do redo the environmental analysis. They're also planning for uh, you know, a second ballot measure, and they're appealing that court ruling. So they're trying different avenues, um, but but it is it is a very real risk that if the city cannot raise the height limit here with the approval of voters and the approval of courts, uh, then you know none of these projects will pencil, and the sports arena will remain as it is, which is is uh, not the greatest uh, property that uh, the city could could have here in this prime uh, you know prime location close to downtown. I mean, it's close to public transit. There's, it's really, really um, valuable land, uh, but it's not as valuable if you can only build up to 30 feet there. I've been speaking with KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. And Andrew, thank you. My pleasure, Maureen. Mother's Day is this Sunday, and working towards healthier pregnancies and healthier babies is the impetus of an ongoing tech-savvy study. The study called Power Mom is using wearable technologies to build the largest ever research community of pregnant study participants. The data collected is a key part of addressing the structural racism that causes black women to be three times more likely to die during childbirth and black infants to be twice as likely to die within their first year of life. Scripps researcher Dr. Lachey Ajayi, a physician scientist who herself has dealt with structural racism as a pregnant woman, is using her experiences and scientific knowledge to lead the study. She spoke with Midday Edition co-host Jade Heinemann. Here's that interview. So the study is called Power Mom, and you are using wearable technologies to collect data. First, what kind of technology are we talking about here? We're starting with one of our partners, Fitbit. So that's one of the technologies that we're going to use. The reason why is Fitbit, with its wide range of metrics that it collects, allows us to really capture some of those out-of-clinic points of contact that we want to know really basic information such as step count, activity level, then also really more advanced things like respiratory rate, 
heart rate. It allows us to measure factors about stress, heart rate variability, really capture what's going on with that pregnant woman that we as clinicians don't always get to see outside of the clinic visits or outside the hospital. And that leads me to my next question. I mean, how does this method of data collection give different or better insight than what we can glean at the doctor's office? Absolutely. So I'll even start from a personal experience. I have a great relationship with my new OBGYN. I come to her clinic appointments, she sees me, and I can just give her the information that she's asking me right then and there, right? Sometimes she'll ask me questions about kind of what happened within my week, and I may not be able to really remember or recall. So when our physicians or clinicians ask us these questions and they're so well-intentioned, we may not remember or be able to recall. So there are things that our body experiences that we may not really be able to relate or even recall. This kind of study doesn't really depend on recall. It captures information in the moment. So having a technology that you know automatically includes your blood pressure, your weight, that captures moments of stress, your activity level, and you have that information, it gives your clinician more information that we may be able to capture at that clinic appointment right there. How does this study help break down the structural racism that exists within healthcare, specifically for Black women and infants? When we look at structural racism and maternal health disparities, women who experience higher incidence of violence within their community, whether it's from policing, have an increased risk of having preterm babies, which we know is a risk factor to fetal demise. So being able to collect a study where we ask questions about neighborhood cohesion, neighborhood safety, access to a park within your community so you have a place that's safe for you to do the exercise that your doctors, your nurse practitioners, your midwives recommend that you do, having that information while also collecting biometric information about your activity level, your levels of stress, your heart rate, those kind of information laid on top of each other allows us to see how does policy such as redlining, how does housing segregation, how does neighborhood safety, areas that are policed more frequently, also healthcare deserts, how often, how how far do you have to go to get healthcare? Are you able to access it within your own home? Do you have to take public transportation? What happens to you while you're taking that public transportation on your way to your clinician visit? And does that lead to having increased blood pressure when you see your physician? So having this information, collecting this data helps us really dismantle and actually get empiric data that points us to what aspects of structural racism impacts these health outcomes that we see within our patient population. Does the Power Mom study give women tools to advocate for themselves at the doctor's office in real time? It absolutely does. Earlier in my introduction, you talked about what I experienced um, as a healthcare provider seeking care when I was pregnant. And I'm someone who has the privilege to know what questions to ask. I know what's wrong with my body and what's unusual. Paramom not only does it ask our participants to share their data, it gives you some quote-unquote normal parameters, but it also allows you to track your own personal pregnancy to see what's unusual for you. And when you have those abnormalities for you based on your pregnancy, you can then access the healthcare system and have a way to advocate for yourself and show, hey, I may not know everything, but I know this is different and I'm worried. Please see me and take me seriously. We shouldn't have to do that, but this allows our pregnant people to have that tool to advocate for themselves. 
Aside from having vital data from studies like this one, what else do you think should be done to fix what's broken within the healthcare system so that Black women can have healthier pregnancies and babies? So there's the data that we collect that we will interface with with other clinical researchers, but then it's using this data to then change policy. How is healthcare reimbursed? How can we bring healthcare to the home so that you don't have to use public transportation if you don't need to? If you just had a very traumatic C-section and then, then have to leave your home to travel to get your baby checked or to engage with your midwife, your clinical caregiver, how can we make it so that what can be done at home is reimbursed to make our healthcare system work for our patients rather than making our patients have to fit into our healthcare system? The data that we're collecting and the partners that we have, we are partnering with community organizations such as March of Dimes, doula organizations, but we also are partnering with tech industry, Microsoft, Fitbit, Google, health payers like Blue Cross Blue Shield. It takes a village to truly transform the way that we are providing care to our patients. And we can't just do it alone. Doctors can't do it alone. Breachers just can't do it alone. It takes a village. I've been speaking with Dr. Lachey Ajayi, physician scientist and researcher with Scripps. Dr. Ajayi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for this opportunity, and I really appreciate your time. And for more information about Power Mom and how to join the study, go to kpbs.org. Top Gun Maverick is set to premiere in San Diego today. KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh says the Navy is banking on the film striking gold twice for naval aviation. I'm out at Naval Base North Island in front of a row of F-18s. Apart from Tom Cruise, the fighter planes are probably the real stars of Top Gun Maverick. Captain Brian Ferguson has been a Navy pilot for 28 years. So this is the engineering depot, the fleet readiness center. So this is where airplanes come for major maintenance overhaul. Ferguson was the Navy's technical advisor on the film. He was a fan of the original. So my career uh, essentially started in 1986 when I saw the, the first movie. And I said, I want to do that. I want to land on ships in a jet and go into combat. So we went in right after college. When the original film was made, Top Gun, or U.S. Navy Strike Fighter Tactics Instructor Program, was in San Diego when Miramar was a naval air station. The actual Top Gun moved to Fallon Naval Air Station back in the 1990s. But the filmmakers wanted to keep the new movie set in San Diego. Ferguson breaks it down. So Top Gun is acknowledged universally to be Naval Air Station found about it. They bring all these best of the best of the best in the storyline down to San Diego to train here. Would we do that? No, we wouldn't. We would train in Fallon. But, you know, to get to get the beaches, there's better beaches here than in the deserts of Nevada. Uh, so there was a little bit of artistic license there. And it okay. doesn't bother me at all. There was a huge lag time from when filmmakers were actually filming in and around San Diego and the premiere this week. We started filming uh, October of 2018, I think. So four years ago, COVID put a a bit of a, a pause on it. The original film was a recruiting boon for the Navy. This time around, the Navy went all out. It opened its doors to Paramount, providing F-18s and pilots. The filmmakers were allowed to shoot on the USS Abraham Lincoln and the USS Roosevelt, which were both based in San Diego at the time. Here's Ferguson. We started filming here along the runway using a Fleet Readiness Center airplane. Uh, And then we moved on to various shooting locations to include two aircraft carriers, five bases, studios in Los Angeles. 
When the filmmakers decided the real fighter pilot bars were too small, the Navy let them build one on base at North Island. They loved them, but they weren't big enough to put cameras in and back out and get the angles they wanted. So being movie makers, they just built an entire huge complex on the beach at, uh, at Breakers Beach. Ferguson insists the Navy build the studios for everything. Earl Wetterbrook is a retired Marine colonel. He's now a pilot at San Diego Sky Tours. I caught up with him for a Zoom interview in the company's hangar before he was about to fly. This was just in a hangar getting some maintenance done on it right now. So we do uh, aviation tours. At the time the first movie came out, he was stationed in Yuma, Arizona. Uh, with the Marine Aviation Weapons and Tactics Squadron, kind of the Marine version of Top Gun, if you will. And I knew a lot of the guys that flew in the first movie. Of course, we gave them a ration of a hard time. Wetterbrook says he saw the surge in interest back in 1986 with his own eyes, just going out to the bar at Miramar at the time. He says it's hard to imagine the new film having the same impact. At the time, I mean, it was kind of the Cold War. There wasn't, you know, there wasn't much going on. Uh, a lot of patrols. There wasn't, there was no combat. You know, the, the thing's going to be interesting now is we've just gone through 30 years of uh, essentially continuous combat in the Mideast. The audience is going to be a little different. People watching this movie are now much more aware of the reality of war. Still, the Navy is banking on Maverick to boost the image of naval aviation one last time. Steve Walsh, KPBS News. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. San Diego music continues to rebound from the coronavirus pandemic. Local bands who put new albums and concerts on hold through the heart of the pandemic are now releasing new music and returning to local stages more frequently. One of those is local band Surefire Soul Ensemble, which plays an instrumental mix of jazz, funk, and soul. The band returns this week with a new album and album release show this Saturday, May 7th, at the Courtyard in San Diego. Here's the title track from the album, Step Down. Joined now by the Surefire Soul Ensemble's piano and organ player, Tim Felton. Tim, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jade. Hey, the last album you made was released in the fall of 2019. Your new album, Step Down, is now being released into a, a very different world. How does this album reflect these times? Well, most of it was kind of recorded during the lockdown period, and it was really therapeutic and a way for the band to to keep in touch and keep both the musical and personal relationship going. So there's a lot of emotional baggage for, for lots of us attached to that time. It was kind of like a brave new world that we entered. 
at that point, a lot of new things happening. So, you know, just in, in some of the titles and in some of the, the emotion of the music, it's definitely a reflection of, of that period. Indeed. How do you describe the music of Surefire? I guess it's a mixture of funk and soul at its basic core. I mean, you could throw a bunch of other descriptors in there, like spiritual funk or Afrobeat, Ethiopian jazz, but really it comes down to African American uh, soul and funk music. Hmm. And uh, you touched on this earlier, but how was the making of your new album, Step Down, uh, different from others you've made in the past? It, it really relates to the, the pandemic and the lockdown period. Most of the, of the songs were recorded then, you know, kind of like file sharing, sending files back and forth, starting with, with demos from people and then eventually layering in the, the new parts and everyone recorded their own stuff in their own homes. So it was very, very much different because we usually make the albums together in the same room at the same time. You know, did the pandemic change how the songs were written and recorded? 100% because, yeah, we, we didn't feel comfortable getting together and um, it was all re- remotely. And then I mixed it here in my studio and, you know, just tried to give it a feeling like we were together. But, you know, we were very much separate during that time. Mm. I, I want to play another track from the album. This one has an Afrobeat rhythm to it. It's called Time to Rebuild. a little bit about how this song came to be it was an older demo that i had from a few years back Um, sometimes they just take a while to come together and um, i started reworking it when some other tunes were coming together for the album and i you know i sent it around to different members of the group and uh, travis klein wrote a great melody for it and you know everyone contributed awesome parts to it Um, travis klein took the flute solo as well and, and with the title, it's kind of like, you know, this hope that we had during the pandemic that, you know, coming out of it was going to be, we're going to come out, we're going to rebuild, we're going to, it's going to be like a, a period of unity. You know, the pandemic really did a number on the local music scene in San Diego. Where would you say things are now? I mean, are they back to normal? They're headed towards that. I saw a post from the Casbah the other day that said they had sold out shows six nights in a row. So that's, that's great news for, for local music in San Diego. I'm sure a lot of people are hesitant to get out and um, be indoors around people. It's one reason why we're we're doing our our release show here at an outdoor venue in downtown. Mm. Have you yourself been returning to see live music again? I've just been to one show at the Tower Bar, which is is a a smaller uh, venue, holds about 80 people. And it was was super weird, but it was so it was so re- rewarding uh, emotionally to see, you know, just see people, a bunch of friends I hadn't seen in a long time. And it's just nice to be with people again. Yeah. The album release show is at a fairly new music venue for you guys located downtown called The Courtyard. 
Why did you choose that venue for this show? Well, we we've played there a few times. We did a, a Jazz 88 fundraiser event there and we played the Courtyard's anniversary show a few years back. I, I just really like the venue. It's it's outdoors. It's got beautiful murals inside of it. It's like in the East East Village part of downtown um and and we could we could throw an all ages uh, show there. So, you know, people can bring their their families. I I've, I've got a a young daughter hoping she can can come as well and and they'll still be able to, to sell um, beer and wine and, and food with an all ages show and here's a clip of another track from the album the other side show will be this saturday may 7th at the courtyard on market street in san diego how can people learn more about it ticket sales are through the soda bar which is another club here in town they're, they're presenting it you can go to the courtyard's website soda bar's website the surefire soul ensemble website which is sfsemusic.com as well I've been speaking with the Surefire Soul Ensemble member, Tim Felton. Their album release show will be this Saturday, May 7th. Hey, Tim, thanks. Thank you, Jen. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu.